I'm in a great mood for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, we're going to talk about Donovan Mitchell in today's Open. Then we're going to talk to Bob Ryan, who puts me in a good mood. We're going to talk a little bit about captaining your boat at night, and then life advice. Enjoy. This episode is presented to you by Lululemon. The perfect pants do exist, and you can get them at Lululemon. The men's ABC pants are shockingly comfortable and breathable, and they come in tons of different styles and fabrics, all made to make you look and feel good. Whether you're in the office, at the gym, cheering in the stands, or just relaxing at home, these pants are in a league of their own. Buy a pair today at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Tired of paying for cable TV? Switch to Hulu Plus Live TV today to watch over 95 live channels for sports, news, shows, and more. Plus, get access to Hulu's entire streaming library with access to Disney Plus and ESPN Plus all in one plan. No long-term contract, no hidden fees, and no clunky cable box. Get Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. I want to talk about Donovan Mitchell to start today's podcast. Uh, maybe we thought we were going to be a little bit further along. Mitchell had some tweets. It kind of felt like there was some momentum picking up last week that Mitchell was going to be with the Knicks. On the Utah side of this, uh, none of this is surprising. You know, whether it was Bill and I talking sometimes on this podcast, just in the way when you're checking in and you're asking a team, like, hey, what do you think about this draft pick? Or, hey, what do you think about that trade or whatever? Whenever you brought up names of who the next pissed off star is going to be, Mitchell was always at the top of the list. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case here. This isn't the demands that we've seen from other players. It just isn't. Um, but it's it's a pretty telling thing that I would say for a couple of years, like, who do you think the next guy could be that decides that he wants out? And Mitchell was always brought up. Uh, I don't know if that's a Utah thing. I think the Jazz and the new ownership have tried to do a lot of things to make Mitchell feel like he's the guy. Um, you know, I've I've heard it described as like there's certain players who you have to kiss their ass, you have to give them the keys to the franchise and do everything you possibly can for them. And I think Utah has even tried to do some of those things, but is Mitchell is Mitchell in that tier? And that's what I always think is kind of interesting about where this goes, because I've said it too many times, but it's worth repeating once again. The job of a GM is to have your team positioned for the next guy that's mad. And unfortunately for a lot of markets, even for the next guy that's mad, he's just not going to want to go there. And Utah is one of those markets, uh, which is a massive disadvantage. It's a disadvantage for too many teams in the league, uh, but that's just the reality of what it is. And the next thing was always some connected deal where, you know, Leon Rose comes in, CAA guy, you know, Mitchell's represented by Austin Brown, who's terrific. Uh, everybody raves about him. There was a Kentucky Louisville connection there on the staff where, you kind of wondered, you know, some of these franchises that would give the keys to running it, thinking this is about relationships. Like, how often is that actually really paid off? Well, it hasn't paid off enough to make you think this is the only way to build your team with agents running the teams and, and different people with different connections. But it's kind of about giving yourself maybe a chance. And whether it was Carl Anthony Towns that was brought up in the past or Devin Booker before Chris Paul got there, Mitchell was always somebody, somebody that you thought, like, I could see him probably wanting to bounce at some point. So I don't think it's a secret that he would maybe like to play somewhere else. And I also don't think it's too much of a secret that if Ainge is moving Gobert for draft picks and then you bring back Conley, Bogdanovich, um, and Mitchell, like, do you have enough there to even be out of the playing group? Do you have enough there in a stacked West to be a top six? You, you don't. You, you likely don't. And then it's like, cool, we made it in the playing game, and then what, right? And they haven't even been successful, and they've had some pretty good basketball teams over the last couple of years. Uh, not so much this year, really, going back to two years ago, right? So – Whenever 
somebody like Mitchell isn't available because you know the the moving target of which players think, hey, I'm worthy enough to decide that I need to go somewhere else because it's not working here. You know, it's it's felt like that that move is reserved for the top top group of the NBA. And Mitchell's really good. Okay, he is really good. I am a fan. I feel like I've defended him uh, for most of his career against some other players. I'll get to some of the things that are a little bit concerning later on. But if the Knicks were to grab Donovan Mitchell, that's a good thing. All right. Like if I had one sentence on this, I am for the Knicks getting Donovan Mitchell. I don't know what the price will be, but we all know how this works. Now, I think not just in basketball, not specific to this trade, but the way these these things are talked about, I think there's a lot of us walking around that like to offer up problems for not even solutions, just things that are presented, right? Because what I've heard and what you will hear if Mitchell were to end up on the Knicks or maybe, you know, I don't know if something else could happen here, but it would be immediately met with, well, you're going to win a championship with Donovan Mitchell? And the answer is no. The answer is no, all right? There's no guarantees whatsoever. But I've always felt like as you get a little bit older and you'll talk to people like, oh, I'm thinking about doing this or I'm thinking about doing this. There's, there's too many people that their first instinct is to think of why the thing that you're talking about won't work. And there's still a really good chance. Like, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. Like, if, again, if we stay with basketball, when I've seen debate shows talk about players and say the one guy really likes the player and the other guy isn't as high in the player, the other guy is always going to win the argument by countering by saying, does that player guarantee you a championship? <laughs> think about what you're asking. Like, that means the guy defending the player has to say, yes, I am guaranteeing a championship. Winning is fucking hard. It is really, really hard. So if the criteria for any transaction is that it has to win a championship, then the guy that calls it out gets to win the arguments all the time because it's a really easy argument to make and the odds are always in your favor. Something that's similar but not nearly as important but kind of similar. I remember when I first got started, I was uh, an insurance consultant, which in itself is a hilarious story. Didn't last that long with that. was not my fault. Uh, the company was breaking the law by letting me be a consultant because I never actually sold health insurance. And it's a shocking little thing. The state of Vermont wanted people who were insurance consultants to actually have at one point worked in insurance. I actually think that checks out. But yeah, uh, it didn't work out. So the guy that I was going to work for was asking me about my deal because it was a good enough question. He was like, you know, what's your deal? You bartending, but you went to a good school and you graduated a couple of years ago, but you're still sort of hanging out. Like, what did you do? I was like, well, you know, I did do an internship at this TV station. I don't know if I'd want to be on the air, uh, maybe work for a team or something like that. He's like, well, there's no money in that. Like the, his, his first instinct was to tell me why the thing that I was thinking about doing was a stupid idea because there's no money in it. And by the way, like the general part of that is, okay, yeah, you're probably right. I did say to him, not if you're awesome. And he was like, what? <laughs> like, that was my counter. I was like, well, not if you, there's money in it if you're awesome at doing it. So I don't like a lot of the, the TBD conversations that will happen with Mitchell because this isn't about guaranteeing a title for the Knicks. You're the Knicks. Like, I know what the brand is supposed to be. I know what the city. But I think Knicks fans know, like, this has actually been a comically bad run for a team that's supposedly a storied franchise. And all it guarantees you, getting it just makes you better. And that's kind of the point. Like, I'll never forget one time working with Bob Ryan, who's joining us later. We were doing some debate show, Comcast, after a Celtics game, and there was a trade rumor. I don't even remember who the player was. And they were asking us if the Celtics should trade for this player. And the host was like, is it a championship move? 
though? Is this a championship move? And Bob Ryan's like, championships, like win more than 45 games. It was a down period for the Celtics at that time. And it was a great point. He's like, I, I don't not, I'm not looking at anything with the standard of, does this trade mean that it's going to be a championship? I'm just like, hey, are you guys going to be better? And the Knicks would be better. Again, depending on what happens, do they get to keep Barrett? I think Barrett improves. Barrett's somebody I really liked this past season. And the other thing, NBA players are not like Rosillo. They don't like to be alone, right? They don't like to do this by themselves. So if you add Mitchell and then maybe another guy decides, hey, I'll go there. Now you have a place at the table. And that's really what all of this stuff is. Whether it's tanking and hoping, it doesn't guarantee you anything. It gives you a chance. It gives you a chance at something, right? If the Utah Jazz end up tanking, which is probably what they should do, uh, especially with somebody like Wembayama who's coming out, um, which, by the way, an aside, I cannot wait for the story that is written. Um, if Utah were like a disastrous record this year and the Wembayana stuff were happening, someone will write, well, you know, they did have a French center. And it worked out really well. And he made a ton of money. And it's completely irrelevant. Be like, like Victor's going, you know, I was on the fence about this Utah thing, but the Gobert deal really worked out. It has nothing to do with it. Like there's no, but someone will write that. All right. Rant, mini rant over off of that. Pivoting back to the Knicks. Mitchell's going to be 26 in September. All right. He's a borderline third team all NBA player. He can shoot the ball 36% from three. He gets to the free throw line, makes his free throws. It gives you about five assists. But the more important thing, the thing I can never get off of him while I defend Mitchell, he's 28 points per game in 39 career playoff games. That's fourth active right now. All right? Only behind Luka, KD, and LeBron. That first round series against Denver in 2020, he went for 57, 30, 20, 51, 30, 44, and 22 in that series. In the 2021 2-0 lead that they blew to the Clippers once they went small and just worked Gobert, Gobert couldn't do anything back to a Clippers small lineup defending him, he scored 45, 37, 30, 37, 21, and 39. He can go. And I love those guys. Now, the concerning part is, what happened with you defensively? You, you're not the tallest guy, but you're stout. And you get a 6'10 wingspan, and you're not old. Are you bored? Are you not competitive enough? Because there's no other part of your game that tells me that you're not competitive. But why Why did the defense look so bad against Dallas in this past playoff series? And it did. It looked like he kind of gave up a little bit, which is concerning. Uh, I would say there's also times where he forces the issue a little bit. I've called it Westbrook-ish, Westbrook light, which is also a little concerning. But he's still young enough and still dynamic enough and a true number one get-me-buckets playoff score, like a real one. All right. Not, I need something else to happen. I need there to be spacing. I need other shooters around me. I need a, no, like he kind of can do it on his own, which can lead to those times where he's also forcing it too, which that's that fine line of figuring out how to be as a player. But turning 26 this fall and being on a new team, like I'm all for this kind of transaction, which I know guarantees nothing. One little addition to this. Does it feel like it's a little bit like Mello coming home? Remember that? Mello finally gets to the Knicks, tells the Nets, if you trade for me, I'm not signing. Gets the Knicks to, which is always kind of a weird debate. Like, what was better, LeBron just leaving in free agency or Mello demanding a trade the whole time and then 
also demanding a trade where the Knicks had to give up probably a lot more than they would have, or they could have just waited a free agency. I mean, it's just kind of a funny historical thing to kind of go back and look at. Was it better that Melo was like, I'm not staying here, so you might as well get something for me. And the LeBron thing, the public just didn't know how to process all that stuff 12 years ago. And now the desensitization of the entire thing. I don't know if that's the word, but to be desensitized to players demanding out. Like nobody really cares about it anymore. And fucking LeBron just left a free agent. People lost their minds. But I do wonder, Melo got to the Knicks at 26. The coming home deal, it was a big deal. The problem is nobody came with him. Amari had one good season left in him and he was done. They got Baron Davis's last season of his career out of him. The Jeremy Lin run where Mello was like, yeah, I don't know that we're running our offense through this guy. You had a fun couple of weeks. I'd like the ball back. J.R. Smith was in there at one point, second leading scorer. They won one playoff series with Mello the entire time he was with the Knicks. And I defend Mello because I think most of the time when you look at who they lost to throughout, whether it was Denver or the Knicks, they usually lost to better basketball teams. You know, people knock Mello for his playoff record. I'm like, look at who they play. Like, how many times were they supposed to win that series? I think there's one in there that's a little disappointing. But most of the time, he always lost to a better team. But nobody actually went to go with him. That was the part. But like I said, there are no guarantees. I'm not guaranteeing that the Knicks win. I'm not guaranteeing that the next superstar says, hey, I want to play with Donovan Mitchell. But it gives you a much better chance of what your current roster is. This episode is brought to you by Cintas. In sports, you're always thinking of that next play. It's the same with business. Cintas has the products, people, and solutions that help keep you a step ahead. And your Cintas MVPs are the dedicated service reps who help make sure your team has what you need when you need it. They really got you covered. Cintas has workwear and apparel for almost any job imaginable. They have styles that are durable, comfortable, and great looking. And they'll deliver fresh uniforms back to your business every week. They'll deliver floor mats and restroom products and stock your essential cleaning supplies. They provide first aid supplies, safety training, and life-saving AED defibrillators. And then they'll even test and inspect your fire extinguishers, fire protection systems, and emergency exit lights. Visit Cintas.com and get ready for the workday. This episode is brought to you by Netflix. A gentleman always opens the door for you, but the gentlemen are just as likely to break it down and stash their drugs inside. The Gentleman, based on Guy Ritchie's award-winning film, is a new Netflix series that follows a whole new cast of criminal lords and ladies slumming it in Britain's criminal underworld. Guns out and pinkies up. Don't miss The Gentleman, now playing only on Netflix. The best way to introduce him is just to say the legend, Bob Ryan, joins us. Uh, on the podcast, a bunch of stuff that I want to talk to. How's it going, man? How's your summer? Okay. Always remember, print the legend. Okay. <laughs> Summer's <laughs> going fine. You know, but like everybody else, uh, you just the number one priority is try to stay healthy. And and summer two is try to stay cool, you know, but uh, uh, so far, so good. The reason I want to talk to you, there's a bunch of things we'll get to, and I'm sure some things that I, I didn't expect to get to. I think it's both fair and unfair to compare prior eras to today when we're talking about basketball. We could talk about any sport, right? Because yeah. the simple part of the science is the evolution of man would tell us that, you know, this is just the way it works. People are faster. People are stronger. If you took a guy from a time capsule from the 1960s and plug him into today's game, he's, he's going to struggle. I have a, a joke where I think if Eddie House played in the 50s and 60s, there'd be statues of Eddie House outside of every gymnasium in America, right? Like, they would just be like, this guy's unbelievable. Um but it's also incredibly going to be a good discussion. I can tell you right now. Yeah. Okay. All right. But I also think it's incredibly unfair. And, you know, I know JJ Reddick, who I love, caught a ton of crap for the plumbers and 
in line and and he's he's almost comically dismissive of previous generations and i know jerry west went back at him who has one of the all-time great statistical profiles of anyone that's ever played the game so what do you think is fair and and where do you think it's unfair when we start talking about well, generations? Though, i think we have to separate they're not it is not a universal uh, given the sports are all different and there's one sport that above all about this where this uh discussion uh, where, where this uh, assumption that modern is automatically better and that's football and that's that it's much different than the other sports i mean i grew up in an era when when linemen were 220 you know uh 250 was a big guy um you know and all that and 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 there, there were no there were no linebackers running you know ridiculous 40s and 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 weighing 255 or 60 or more and 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 you know the 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 the, the, the average i mean come on the, the size of this alone is this uh, here's one for you and i i looked this up uh, and and you can check you can double check it in 1976 we had indoor plumbing remember teller tv you know we had those things and we, you know we had we we had some amenities in life the height of the steel curtain era of the Pittsburgh Steelers, the vaunted Steelers. In 1976, you check it out, the entire National Football League listed zero players weighing 300 pounds. Think about that, folks. Not you, but folks, okay? So football is absolutely, there's specimens of playing football, six, five wide receivers. Uh, with extra, we're in the golden age of two things in sport, in my opinion. Short stops defensively, slash, and center fielders, and wide receivers. The wide receivers today are ridiculously talented, frighteningly so. Okay. Uh, but now that's football. We're not here to talk about football. I have made basketball this, this myth of, of athleticism being a product of the, of, of the 21st century. And, and that uh, that the modern, the old, the players of the 60s and 70s would not be uh, capable of being stars. Now, the average player, no. But I am telling you right now, and I've said this for years, I wrote this in a, my book in 2014. I can give you a list of a 12-man team of, of NBA players, each of whom spent at least five years in their career in the 60s. A 12-man team. I put up against anybody you want to play today. Put up. No. First of all, I got the centers. You don't have them. I got Wilt. I got Russell. I got Kareem. I mean, just start with, I, I, I just can pick one of them, and I got better than anybody you got today in, in the pivot, period. End of story. And anybody who doesn't know that, they're just ignorant with a capital I, both face italics, okay? You don't have people like that anymore. They don't wear them anymore. They don't breed them anymore, okay? So you start with that. I got Oscar. I got Jerry. I got Havlicek. I got Barry. I got, I got, I got Sam Jones. I got the Busher. I got Pettit. Oh, thank you very much. They were athletes. You know, athleticism being defined as running and jumping. There's other things. Look at Bird, who was not the greatest runner or jumper, but his, but hand-eye coordination was off the charts. There's so much that goes into this it's instead of just pure athleticism, which we have to even be sure we define properly. So you see where I'm standing on this. So you think if you took any 12 guys from the mid sixties to the mid seventies, you would put that group of 12 up against. No, I said, I, I can give you the creme de la creme of the sixties and seventies. Yeah. That's oh, what I mean. I, I, like, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm saying, and here's the thing I, I'm making say, they go, you have to play five years on this, 
I'll give you the five years of, of this quarter career were spent in the 60s and on everybody that I named. And, and I would put that team up I, very comfortably against any 12-man aggregation, any all-star team you want to give me today. I put that team up. Yeah, there, you, people don't, I'll give you an example of the guy who's fallen through the cracks of history, not necessarily in my hometown in Boston, but everywhere else, that people don't realize, they don't realize how great an athlete John Havlicek was, who was the last guy cut by the Cleveland Browns in 1962, not having played football since high school and having tried out by the Browns as a wide receiver when his high school career was a quarterback. And he was cut in favor of Gary Collins, whose name probably means nothing to the ignorant people of today, but he was an all-star, all-pro wide receiver. John was the last guy cut by the Browns in 62. That's how good an athlete he was. So, I mean, it's not to mention there's nobody like him. There's never been a two-position player. Don't give me Scottie Pippen. Don't give me anybody else. He's the best mid-sized two-position player of all time. And and that's that. And there's nobody like to have a check today, he had three-point range. He would have worked on See, this guy's this whole nonsense about the three-point shot, and these guys couldn't shoot it. Of course they didn't shoot it because nobody wanted to shoot it. It was a stupid shot. Why would you take it? All right? Well, now they're giving what's put a value on it. That's the name of the game today. These guys would have gone to the gym, and they would have worked on it. But there are some that had that range, Havlicek being one of them. And you know what would have been an incredible three-point shooter? It wasn't, you know, but he didn't get credit for it. Jerry Lucas. Jerry Lucas was made for today's game. Well, of course, who's, people say, who's Jerry Lucas? So, you know, only one of the handful of great college players of all time. But anyway, no, the, these guys would have worked on their game. They would have broadened their range. That's all. They would have gone to the gym. No problem. Nobody wanted to because nobody. it was the stupid shot to take. Why would you take it? Please. JJ, please. Who would win one-on-one, Havlicek or Kobe? John wasn't a one-on-one player. Kobe would win. John was John was a uh, John was a move off the ball player. John, had, John had developed those skills to the point, and, and he ran a team. As a, but I, I would say I'd have to say Kobe. Yeah. So what? Let's play five. It's five. Again, that, that's a nice little. And the end. Yeah. By the way, here's the next thing about that. By the way, the, the, I don't know if you know this, but I mean, and I'm I, I, I'll stick with Kobe would win when the NBA instituted a three on a one on one contest in, in, in circa 1972. Remember that? Are you know aware of that? I you, don't. You well, I remember I, I remember the Akeem one that was supposed I to happen it. when I was in college. Okay, so you covered it. 1972. Who won? First one. I don't know. I don't know. Bob Lanier. Bob Lanier won. And who did he beat? JoJo White. Neither of them. I mean, so who cares about one-on-one ultimately? That that it was so boring, by the way. It was so boring. And 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 they got about it, 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 it didn't command interest. If it had commanded interest, we'd be doing it today, just like the dunk contest. But you know we'd be doing it today. But no, it didn't have any interest. It's it, it's not so. Yes, Kobe would beat John Havlicek one on one, more than likely. Although I'm not so you know sure, given the fact that the first champion was Bob Lanier. How about that, ladies and gentlemen? I, I'm like I can't want to go look this stuff up because I remember how excited I was about like the idea of this was going to come back in the '90s and we we started mm. to go for a million dollars and then like the reason it wouldn't happen now, I don't know if the money would be right for it. I don't know the kind, but if you were of a certain status, you wouldn't play in it because you'd have only anything. You wouldn't have oh. really that much to win. Like LeBron would in a million years would not play in this. I remember. Um, oh God, it was a stunning. I'll, I'll, the, not, the name will come back to me. Time, but there was a mediocre six seven forward who went very deep into the contest that nobody would have believed in a million years whatever we're going. It, it just upset all pre- preconceived assumptions about you know about it. The whole thing. Anyway, yeah. So I answer your question. Yeah, I'll give you a copy of it, John one on one. But as a basketball player, um, 
and, and Kobe's in my top 10. Don't worry. You know, he's, he's an all time. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not here to knock Kobe at all. I didn't think it wasn't. And somebody listening to me ask that question, maybe like, what are you, what are you trying to do? Just have Bob on today and rile him up and see if he's going to pick Havlicek. It's just that you would, you would think about it more than anyone else that I could ask that question to, because you're so, you just spent time talking about Havlicek, but also that his defense and you're right. One-on-one isn't everything here, but I think people would listen to me even suggesting a question is maybe one of the dumbest basketball uh, proposals ever. And I knew that you would at least, you know, discuss it as if it were a thing where I don't think anybody else would. Well, the point is, it, it ultimately isn't relevant. It's a nice conversational piece. It's a fun little subplot. It's a, it's, you know, it's fine. It's great. I, I enjoy talking about it. You know, but in the end, it doesn't mean anything. It does truly doesn't mean anything. And 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 and, and evaluating how good any player is in a historical context, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, you know, he might lose. Kobe might have lost to Elgin Baylor for that matter. For all I know, I don't know. He might have lost to Archie Clark. Uh, yeah, who knows? God knows. I mean, it doesn't matter. But but if you're going to play, if I were to have put my money down on Kobe versus John, knowing the kind of player John was and the kind of game Kobe player was, I'd put my money on Kobe on one-on-one. Maybe the better way to do this is to kind of do, do the reverse part of it. It kind of reminds me of the Ted Williams thing. Um, you know, anybody that spent time reading about Ted Williams, I certainly was influenced uh, because of my father's love. That was my father's first hero. And you know it as, as well as anybody, except for maybe Lee, you know, uh, uh, that when you really break down like who Ted was as a hitter and how absurd the numbers are with him missing as much as he did to service time and what the overall numbers would have been and the the way his eyesight helped him as both a pilot and a fisherman and like that this was like almost a superpower for him. And then I'll hear somebody say, well, you know, with the bullpens now and everybody throwing 100 and different cutters and all this kind of stuff, it kind of gets your three-point thing. Like, I don't want to hear about certain three-point averages of supposed shooters. Like, some people bring up Larry Bird's three-point shooting and going, do you really think if Larry Bird didn't want to prioritize three-point shooting, he wouldn't have been a guy hitting 40% of his threes? Of course he would. It's just not the way the game played. Look at the size in that front line of that 86 Celtics team. That's what the game was. So when ever I would think of like how dismissive people could be of other people, Ted Williams would have figured out 2022 baseball. Like he would have figured it out. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I agree. No, no, really. But you know, the point about the, the bullpen explosion and the fact that it's every that so many teams are bringing out not one or two, but the half a dozen guys that throw 98, not forget about 95 uh, now, you know, um, and, and it would have been, he used to, what he talked about, the, the biggest change in his career, which went then from 1939 to 1960, was the uh, advent of the slider. And he said the slider was the biggest uh, uh, you know, uh, threat to batting averages during his time. Um, it, that wasn't a popular pitch. And then when he started in 39, it became more popular. And of course, somebody's got to explain to me the difference between a slider and a cutter any day, by the way. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I think it's I think we've they've gone way too far and. and Pretending that they know what's going on with all with all these radar guns and not the radar guns, but the the spin rates and all that nonsense, you know. Anyway, anyway, yes, thank you. And he's not the only one. Stan Musial, he was a three thirty one lifetime hitter. Same thing. Um, and and the Mazes and the Aaron's and the Clemenies of the next generation. Same thing. Yeah, the great athletes. And by the way, Bird. Uh, let me just. Bird was his use of the three from the beginning was strategic. He used it as a weapon. Of, of, of a dagger at the end of a game or or certain strategic moments and 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 he he was against the three on, on at the time he said on two purposes on two things one he said in those days they called too many the, the referees kept miscalling whether a two should be a three or vice versa too often which now of course we know we can get it straight thanks to replay and the other one was 
He said, if you're winning by two points late in the game, you shouldn't get beat by three. He philosophically didn't like that, that it offended his sense of how the game should be played. But he used it as a weapon. And by the way, on one road trip in 1986, he went 25 to 34 on threes. So uh, please, folks, uh, we talk about all-time great three-point shooters. Don't forget to include the name of Larry Joe Bird. Yeah, because the overall number, like I'll see lists come up and he's like, you know, he rounds up to 38%. Look at all these guys. Ahead. And you're just like, all right, he took less than two a game. It was yeah. weird because out of the gates as a rookie, he shot over 40%. And then he had a stretch of, I think, four seasons where he was in the 20s. And then at the end, you know, he was using it a little bit more and he was making 40% in those last couple of seasons when he was still hurt. I mean, he was done at 35 years old. I just, I'm never going to say that like the depth, the time machine game would be challenging for, for a lot of older players. But when you look at the style of play and you go, okay, well, if you came up in this era and you were somebody like Bird, you, you would just shoot it better. You just would because you would prioritize the game. You would prioritize your game around the way the game is prioritized today. I mean, absolutely. That, that, that's, to me, that's a better, that's common sense. But, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that's exactly right. But the idea of the athleticism in general, I, I think clearly uh, there were, as I said, I believe we're in the golden age of shortstops and center fielders defensively. Never been so many great defensive shortstops. So if you win a gold glove at short now as, or in the outfield, um, you, you, you should be very, very proud because the competition is enormous. Uh, I can tell you that. And, and um, basketball athleticism of, of big guys, you know, there were no, just again, I said there were no, there, uh, there were no centers like, like we, that we had in the, in, in that gold, in that era. No, nor were there any Kevin Durant's, you know, there weren't any Kevin Durant's, there weren't any Jokic's uh, type of players. Um, so, you know, that, you're right. There is a, but pure point guards, you know, uh, we haven't advanced anywhere. And really, the job description is the same. Uh, the, the, we haven't advanced that and changed the game there at all. I mean, I don't think necessarily. Uh, I, I, I think Isaiah Thomas plopped into today, and I'm not as huge as fan of his, but I, but I admire his skill. He plopped into the game today, as is, no better, no worse. He'd be, he'd be a dominant point guard, period. Dominant, dominant. Isaiah actually is underrated as a player. He is. All the other stuff uh, got in the way of us appreciating. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it did. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm probably a, a contributor to that. <laughs> you know? But yes, you're right. It's, he's, he's not, he's not going to get his, his uh, proper due as a great player. Because that, that team, I mean, I get Dumar's role, and that's when I you know, was starting to really pay attention to everything. But you, know, you, would, you would be looking at him as a player who, we, in today's game, you go, that guy needs more help on offense. Like that's, that's what we'd be saying about, you know, that roster and, and granted, you know, when Aguirre came over and, you know, obviously they had, Dan Actually, you know, that, that, but. I still think that that's the gold standard of the of three, three man backcourt production that, uh, uh, and Joe. That, that the Warriors challenged have now challenged with the advent of pool, but you know, but Vin, Vinny Dumars and, and, you know, don't forget Vinny, the microwave, he was a unique phenomenon, truly a phenomenon. And uh, you know how he got the nickname, he got the nickname from Danny Ainge. After a game in which the Celtics beat them, but Vinny went off as he usually did. And, and after the game, uh, Danny said, if they call that guy in Chicago the refrigerator, they should call Vinny the microwave because he heats up in a hurry. And that's how he got the nickname. And uh, uh, he, he was a phenomenon. And, and I think that was the best three-man backcourt ever until right now, because I got to say that if Poole, with the, the, the backcourt the Warriors put out there now, there was never anything better in history, I don't think, offensively than, than, than those three guys. So, all right, if we're, if we're moving things around here then, um, what do you think the 2017 Warriors would do 
against the the nineties uh, boys. I wrote, at the time, I, I wrote that column at the time when they still had Harrison Barnes and before Durant. So that that when they first won sixteen, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I wrote that column, and of course I gave the Celtics beating them, and and the the <laughs> of course you know what do you expect? And and if Art Spander out in San Francisco or Bruce Jenkins wrote, they would have had the Warriors beating the Celtics. I you know we're all buddies. That's fine. Okay. Um, the eighty five eighty six Celtics were the greatest front court of all time. That is an absolute unarguable premise when you consider the fact that the trump card on that team ultimately was bringing bill walton healthy off the bench and changing games in a way that games were never changed before or since because the tradition of a three of a sixth man is a two-position player usually a guard forward but sometimes a a, a forward center such as McHale was to change the game he was a pure center but when he came in with bird it was no it was almost it wasn't it was unfair it was unfair. It was ridiculous what they did. He changed the game. It was the greatest one-two center punch ever with Parrish, a Hall of Famer, and Walton, who played 80 games that year, most he ever played, and, and was the sixth man of the year. And, and, uh, that, that, they, and that team was adaptable. You know, you talk about, all right, what, whose rules are we going to play by? Okay, if we play by the current rules, you'd say automatically, well, the Warriors with that three-point shooting, you'd have to favor them. But um, the Celtic, Bird was a three-point shooter. Danny once led the league. Wedman was, Wedman was a three-point shooter. Dennis Johnson could make it. He's one of those guys, you know, he, he made some. He wasn't a, not automatically one, but he could make it. They had guys who could make threes, and they would have been, they would have adapted themselves. I mean, ask your question. Who's going to guard Mikhail? Draymond, not you. Uh, I have to tell you right now, don't get any hopes up, Draymond. You're not guarding Mikhail. Well, if you are, you're going to get embarrassed. Uh, who, who's going to guard those guys? Really? When Barkley says, and look, Mikhail, Mikhail's array of moves, I... Nobody cares about that stuff anymore, but it's it's hard to describe to a younger person like you were helpless. You know, when Barkley says he's the toughest guy I ever had to deal with, and it's a bad matchup for Barkley because of the height size alone, but it just, McHale would set you up with one that led to the next one, and then you're now guessing of when this guy's going to release it. The arms go forever. The shoulders go forever. You're worried about an elbow and all this stuff. I think the Warriors would just say, okay, fine, we're going to trade twos for threes. Yeah, no, of course, that would have been, no, I would, wouldn't we all who love basketball love to see it to see what would happen whose will would prevail whose style could prevail uh it would it would be a fascinating it, it is the ultimate fascinating matchup of this discussion you could have the 85 86 celtics against the best warriors team you know give him durant all right let's give him durant what the hell that's, uh, that's only fair and 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 that that warriors team against 85 86 Celtics. i don't i'd love to see it because there's you know, you're right it's going to be two different like they're playing two different games Two different games. And that's why, like, look, when people talk about, oh, there's so much spacing now today. And I do think that a lot of the 90s stuff, like if you're and look, I've never argued against Michael Jordan. Uh, I think going through the pandemic and watching all those games again, when Bill and I started doing those podcasts where we watched like, I don't know if it was it was more than five, less than 10 games. And it was something I was glad I did. I went through that exercise to appreciate it again more 25 years later, because there was just there really was that unidentified thing about him where you're like, this guy just has this weird extra little gear to him that when everybody else is out there dying, he just, he figures out a way to provide. He figures out a way to get this done. But I do think it's always kind of overstated as if everybody was getting clothesline going to the rim the entire time. Like there were lazy defensive plays. Like even when I watch some of the playoff games in the eighties, Bob, mm-hmm. I see guys that aren't even picking people up in transition. They're just backpedaling in, packing underneath the three-point line, playing defense that way. And I'm like, man, if you did the time machine thing, the first time they would see guys hitting trailer threes from 27 feet out, they'd be calling timeout going, who, what is this? Like, we have to guard all 
we have to guard this far out the entire time. So yes, there's less contact because there's more spacing, but I've constantly felt like the way that people argue for the nineties are overstating the physical nature because they see clips of hard fouls from the Pistons in a 60 second cut up on Twitter. You hear, you hear that from certain of the other players and certainly hear that from the advocates of the, of the Pistons. Absolutely. You do. I, I, I'm not, disagreeing at all you know it's kind of funny as you were speaking i was thinking the the, the official first three-point shot in nba history made was by chris ford because their game started earlier than the other games that <laughs> night you know? and you know what it was he came down on a transition and he ran into the corner and 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 ran into the corner and and made a one basically what him was a one i call it a one and seven eighths shot it was it was almost a two-hand set <laughs> it was a, it was a one it was a one-hander with a minimal lift that was chris's you know but that was a right corner three-pointer in transition so that so let the record show that the first three-point shot was actually you know had a modern tinge to it <laughs> so all right when i think about jerry west though because they lost so many times in the finals and and you know if you've read any of the history you lived it you were covering it uh, yeah. i'm i'm reading it years removed from it you start going wait what did he score again like what did this guy do again and i think that's one of the examples of like if jerry west grows up in today's world like he's he's one of the leading scorers in the NBA. Like if you add all the training and nutrition, all that kind of stuff, like to just suggest that he would be some twelfth man on a team now oh. is where I think that's where the generational stuff gets almost you know it's borderline. It's it's totally disrespectful, but I also think it's ignorant. Well, it's I don't care about the disrespect. I I do care about the ignorance. And, and when JJ Redick, who ought to know, you know, I I kind of thought he was intelligent. You know, of all people to, to make such a stupid supposition. Anyway, Jerry West. Jerry West averaged 40 points a game in the 1965 finals again, in a losing effort against the Celtics. In 1969, um, I don't know what the final average per game numbers were in the seven-game series, but I do know in, in the losing game seven by two points, he had a triple-double with like 43, you know, 13, 12, something triple-double. Uh, I saw lots of Jerry West. Jerry West would have easily said, okay, uh, if they really want me to shoot from 25 feet, you know, instead of 20, 18, 29, he was a mid-range shooter. I mean, they all were, you know, for the most part. Um, he would have done it. I don't have any thoughts about that. The guy who would have been having the would have had the hardest philosophical transition to the new game was Oscar, because Oscar Robertson's whole thing with the ball uh, it was to get the easiest shot possible every single time. And we used to kid about Oscar. He would back people in. If he had a 20-footer, he wanted a 15-footer. If he had a 15-footer, he wanted a 10-footer. If he had a 10-footer, he wanted a layup. You know, and and, and and this is when he wasn't dishing out leading the league in assists every year, you know. But and, and Oscar's thing was consistency, you know. I mean, he didn't go 40 one night and 15 the next. It was it was a steady stream of 28 to 35s, you know, every night, every night, every night. Anyway, Oscar would have had trouble because that his concept of the game, this this idea of bombardment from, you know, downtown would have been so alien to his philosophical uh, feeling about how the game should be played. I think I think he would have had the hardest time of those guys. Like, All right, this is what I got to do. All right. You know, <laughs> Jerry, Jerry would have just done it. Yeah, Oscar had a hard, he got pissed <laughs> at me. Um, Cause I would, you know, we, we were, I was doing Mike and Mike, I was filling in, he came on and we were like, you know, what, what would you do with Steph in your era? And I thought he was really dismissive of Steph. He's like, we well, just pick him up full court. I was like, you really think like nobody's thought of just picking up, you know, Steph full court? Like he's just going to, with a guy with a great handle, you don't want to pick him up full court. Right. Because, um, and then I'll, I, it was a very weird thing because then he was like, did you ever hear of, and then he named a teammate of his who was like a good shooter. 
and it was really weird. I don't know. I don't know if it was Jack Twyman or something like that. Well, uh, well he was, a, you know, he was, he once scored 31 points a game in 19, Twyman, six, seven forward. And was he talking about Arlen Bachhorn? Is he talking about even Odie Smith, his backcourt mates? Um, Odie All Smith. I know is he brought up a name of a guy. He was like, do you, have you ever heard of? And I was like, no, I, uh, you know, I haven't heard uh, of that I just guy. I names at you that were, were started, you know, were, were, you know, players of, of his time. Cody Smith was one of the last guys that take a two-hand set in the NBA. I know that. And, uh, um, but Arlen Bachwin was a six-four guard, uh, maybe him. But Twyman, of course, was an all-star player of the day. And, and once, as I said, scored 31 points, he got very famous for being the guardian of Maurice Stokes, you know, in the movie and all that. But uh, he was a terrific player. And they was an announcer for years in the, in the 60s. He's the guy who was interviewing Bill Russell in that famous interview in 69 when Russell can't speak. Oh, wow. Okay. Then he's wiping tears after game seven. And then he can't even gather himself to, to speak. And he's never, Jack Twyman had the unfortunate circumstance of, of being the interviewer. <laughs> well, he didn't mention Bevo Nordman. He did not, he was not referencing him. But if it were Twyman, if it were Odie, if it were one of the other guys, it was kind of like, all right, yeah, sorry. Like he got me. I haven't heard of that guy that played in 1962 for Cincinnati. And I still don't think that that guy is Steph Curry. And it was like Oscar was so protective and dismissive. So maybe that's what this all is. It's, it's a lot like high school. We got to put Oscar on a, on, a, on a separate. Oscar is the ultimate guardian of the old days. He, he was always a, you know, a, uh, interesting, put it that way. He, you know, I, I, I had, you know, I, I didn't have any ups and downs with him, but I mean, we all, we all know you got to be wary of Oscar, but uh, in that regard, you know, and so he's not, he's, he's the old school guardian of the, at the gate. <laughs> I mean, you were, you're a steward of the game, Bob. You really are. I mean, you know, you can, you can think of it. How, I know you're, you're kind of, I know the new England thing where it's like, I don't want the attention of, of praise, but you deserve it. Did you have like, what was it like for you early on? Did, did people understand your passion for this game so that they were more open to you or were they, who's this young guy who thinks he knows the game? That's know? a good question. Uh, I, I took over the beat in 1969 at age 23. I, I had not had any, uh, and it was a, it was without any pre- preparation in the terms of pre- preseason. Uh, it was on a Wednesday. I was told I was going to have the beat on Friday. It was opening night, and I, and I had not uh, had no NBA ex- direct NBA experience. No exhibitions. Hadn't met the new coach Tom Heinsohn. Uh, I was. I was. My orientation had been college. I was a huge college basketball fan. I grew up as a huge college basketball fan. Went to Boston College when Kuzi was coaching. We were very good for those four years, and that was a real good education for me, getting to know him. Anyway, uh, my enthusiasm was obvious to people, and I think it was my the biggest asset that I had uh, was was that I, I really was eager to learn. Uh, about the nuances of the NBA as opposed to college. And Tom Heinsohn was a rookie coach and he needed, you know, it didn't hurt him to have uh, the Boston Globe guy, you know, as, to, uh, as an envoy. And because and we were by far the most important uh, uh, institution, um, uh, uh, communication outlet in New England, you know, TV didn't matter then, local TV wasn't covering anything. We were the big paper. So anyway, um, and I think I knew the game, you know, I, I prided myself. I thought I knew the game pretty well. I've been, and um, so I think it was a combination of, I showed them I knew something, but I'd certainly, you know, maybe I asked good questions and, and I certainly wanted to know, you know, things. And, and, uh, uh, and it took me, you know, it, it worked out, you know, I mean, it worked out for my basketball made my, you know, so-called career. There's no question. And, um, you know, I love baseball as much, but my opportunity came in basketball and I took full advantage of it, I think. And, and uh, I'm grateful for it. I'm, I saw the NBA grow from, mom and pop store and the double headers and the, 
and uh, uh, changing flights and, you know, and in, in, in Chicago, as opposed to charter flights and a whole bit, you know, the, the, I saw it grow and went from 14 teams to where it is today. It doubled in size and over. And um, so, yeah, but, but I think people recognize that this kid really loved the game. Who did you end up having the closest relationship among the Celtics? Um, John Havlicek and Paul Silas. And it's, uh, it's Havlicek. I did his, his book. And, and that was a, my first as to book that I did. Uh, uh, and Silas, I was, I thought I was, I felt very close to, and, uh, Paul Westfall, the late Paul Westfall. And, um, uh, the minute he joined the team, we just hit it off. He was a rookie that year in 72, 73. And, um, you know, he, 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 he for sure. Anyway, we, I considered myself to be a, a personal friend right to the end. Uh, you know, and, uh, but the, and the other guy, you know, that I, I, I love and, and uh, I'm not the only one that would claim a, a good relationship with him but that was Dave Cowens. And when people ask me, as I get speaking, who's your favorite player to cover? And I say, well, the best player was Bird. And 1A was Alicic. But the most interesting personality was Dave Cowens. And he's a combination of Hall of Fame skill. He's in the Hall of Fame. An electrifying style. And the most, in, in, and he was the most intellectually curious person that that I covered. And by I, not to say that he's a raging intellectual, quote unquote, but he had a curiosity about life and about the job. He would ask me questions about the job. Nobody did that. Uh, he would. He just was a fascinating guy every day. To be fun to be around, and he gave me one, my one, a, a, a line for all time. I've been thirty eight years later. There's never been a better line for me. Forty eight years. Anyway, the line was. The day they beat the Bucks in 1974, and on a Sunday afternoon, Game Seven in Milwaukee, uh, we are flying home. We, the whole entourage, are flying home after the game, back to Boston, and we are, uh, of course, commercial, and we are. You'll love this. You'll the fan changing planes in Chicago. You know, from Milwaukee, we didn't have a direct flight from Milwaukee to Boston that day. So we, I had not specifically spoken to him after the game for whatever reason. I don't remember why. Well, Mike. I go up to him at the airport and I said, Dave, we didn't get to talk. I said, now you did it. This is, a, you know, you, you, you won the championship. Well, how's it feel? He said, to me, the fun was in the doing. This is simply something from my portfolio of basketball experiences. <laughs> I've been waiting for that. No line. That's the line of my career. <laughs> that's Dave Cowan. That's only, but that's a part of Dave Cowan. Now, not the whole story. But that's part of Dave Cowens. Because, you know, I, I look, I, I've been around enough to kind of know some of the history of, like, you know, the relationship was different then. You know, you became friends with these people. You were around them the entire time. Right. Um, Close so bars the- with them routinely. I'd go up to them at the, on the road in the, in, in the locker room and say, okay, where is it? Where is it tonight? And, you know, it's Place X and, you know, in Chicago or Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee, I think I used to know the name of it. And it doesn't matter. You know, I'm going to close the bar with them. And that's where they went. Now, of course, they go back to play video games, but, but, uh, no, I'm serious or, or, you know, whatever else they might be doing, I don't want to mention, but I, I, I think the drug era is pretty much over, I think. But anyway, um, but no, we went out and we went to dinner on the road. I, we, uh, after practice, I might go to lunch with them here, you know, oh, it was totally different. Okay. But here's the thing, like you had to have been accepted. I can't imagine that every reporter was invited to last call, right? Like you had to have been, there had to have been some people that were the players are like, Hey, I don't want that person around. Right. There weren't that many of us. Remember. True. It was weren't. And so you and, were just all invited no matter what. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, but I mean, I think I was in that, 
ex ultra, you know, that, that inner sanctum category for the most part. Yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a way of life that you can't you, you tell you tell somebody today that there's no way they can comprehend the the, the, the way it worked and for us. The, and even the fact that we weren't to practice every second of practice, you don't get to do that today. You're lucky if you walk in the last five minutes when they're shooting free throws, then you got to go scurry around get your interviews. I used to go to practice. I get there about an hour before practice. I'd go in a locker room, no notebook, just sit there and shoot the breeze and, and um, talk about whatever the game last night or whatever the hell, anything. And then um, I knew all their wives' names and, and, and kids' names and the car they drove and everything else. And and because they knew I knew their life, what high school they had gone to as, as an addition, obviously, to college. And then I, I was curious. And then I'd go speak, sitting with Heinsohn for 10 minutes before practice and talk about what's going on. Then I go watch the whole practice. I knew their whole offense. I'm not making that up. I knew the whole offense. So when they called a play, I knew what the play was coming. I could watch the other teams, see how they uh, reacted to it. I could find out who guys, defensive guys were stupid, what defensive guys were smart on the other teams. That doesn't exist today. There's nobody going to practice every day that knows the team's offense. And I'm not saying because I'm so smart. It was an opportunity that doesn't exist anymore. Was it difficult when you had, I mean, granted, it's the Celtics, so there weren't a bunch of critical years. I know the Tommy stuff at the end wasn't exactly, yeah. you know, a treat for him because he's he's one of the the city's sons, if you want to put it that way, as a, as a Celtic and everything that he did for them as a player and then winning early as a coach. But how hard was that for you to have a far more intimate relationship with the subject, knowing that your job is still to be critical? Because you've never been afraid of being critical, but what yeah. was that like? Well, you know, when I did, you know, you had to get ready for this circumstance. I had an issue with Jojo White uh, that, that resulted in Heinsohn getting upset. Um, uh, that I knew from my, the, the, the play, other players felt that Jojo was being coddled by Heinsohn, that he wasn't coming down hard enough on Jojo to sure up his defense and the, and the change aspects of his offense. And Tommy's defense was, I'll worry about the defense. We need his offense. I don't want to discourage him, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, um, I, I, I wrote some stuff that Tommy didn't, you know, reflected the viewpoints I knew from the veteran players as opposed to his. And that, that started, and he didn't, he didn't react well to that. I thought he would have a more professional reaction to that. He didn't. And that started the beginning of a problem for the two of us over the last like three years of my, of my uh, uh, coverage. I, he, he had a, like an annual meeting that he would tell the team not to talk to me. And, and I would have the reports of the minutes of the meeting reported to me by about in about 20 minutes by one of the players. So, uh, you know, they thought that was crazy. It's not your, you know, and, and they never paid any attention to that. And uh, I'm not making that. It's gospel truth. So our, our relationship deteriorated to the point where in the 80s, 76 finals, we weren't really talking after I wrote a column after the first game uh, uh, in which he had, he was angry because he had something he had read in the paper. He said, they're giving away our whole game plan uh, over 25 cents, you know, and uh, whatever the paper, no, really, it's 1974. Maybe it was 25 cents. and. He came into practice and and started yelling at at uh, Howie McHugh, the PR director, basically yelling at me through Howie, which was not fair to Howie at all. And I wrote a column saying that Tommy Hutchinson and I concluded by saying it's like a a, a a teenage kid who's spoiled brat his father took away the car keys, and and that was the end of it for us. We didn't talk about it. So when we got to Phoenix for the finals, I stayed at Paul Westfall's house. I didn't stay at the hotel with everybody else. I stayed at Paul Westfall's house. And, and in, now here's the story out of that one you'll love. So Westfall has a pool, naturally. It's in Phoenix. I, I can tell you his address, 552 West Burridge Lane. Anybody wants to drive by. And, and Alvin Adams lived down the street. And, and, and uh, Erickson used to come over, Keith Erickson. And after practice, uh, you know, with the time difference and all, I'm done writing by like three in the afternoon, their time. 
I go back to the house. We go to the pool. We're sitting in my pool. And there was another guy who used to come sit by the pool because he he was, uh, you know, he's free and had nothing else to do. He was the 12th man, the 13th man on the 12-man roster. He was the guy left off the roster. Pat Riley. <laughs> so uh, that, that, that's, you know, anecdotal stuff that not everybody has. <laughs> Whenever I hear a different story about Pat Riley, though, I'm like, who is this guy? Because as a player, you go, all right, well, you know, fine. And then... You think like did what did this guy see something in the mirror no one else did? I just finished Robert Evans' autobiography, the legendary producer from Paramount. Yes, have you yes. ever read that, by the way? Have oh, you I read have. that? Read it. I You're like, gonna I love like, it. I like that, that world. That's good. Thank you. You couldn't couldn't recommend it enough. I'll get a okay. copy out to you. But you know, in one moment, he's kind of telling some story because he had this he had this Hollywood Hills deal, and it was it was this unbelievable like French themed garden in this pool. So there was a bunch of weddings that he had hosted. He said, you know, Hey, you had seven, eight weddings hosted here. Pat Riley is the best man at one of them. So like Pat Riley just lives this world of like, there's another level to it that I think even those of us don't truly understand. Yeah. Very different. No, an interesting guy, the whole background, you know, son of the minor league lifer manager, who was a tough guy, barely on a hand on him, uh, I, I, by his own admission, uh, main, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to say admission, but his, he claims to have been a borderline juvenile delinquent in those days. You know, he claims that he was a tough kid, street kid from Schenectady and all that. Goes to Kentucky, plays for Rupp, you know, goes to the finals, as we know, in 66. Um, anyway, um, is a Kentucky legend to this, to this day, one of the all-time Kentucky icons. Uh you know what he did? This, this is the kind of thing. This is part of the facet of the fascination of Pat Riley. When they won it in 72, which is his first championship, remember, he succeeded. He took over from Westhead and they got beaten 71, you know, and by the Rockets. And the Celtics beat the Rockets. But they come back and win it in 72 over the 76ers. And at the conclusion of the final, of the playoffs in 72, he writes handwritten notes to several of the media thanking them for their coverage. I was one of them, but hardly the only one. Imagine that. That's who he was then. That's long before he became Pat Riley. That's long before, you know, um, Wall Street, long before, you know, greed is good, long before Michael, Michael Douglas is, is fashioning himself after the look of Pat Riley, which is what had happened, as we all we well know. And before, before he became this other guy, there were very different, many facets to Pat Riley. You know what he was? He was and this, in between playing and becoming Chick Hearn's partner, he was a carpenter. He made a living as a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. <laughs> Very true. And uh, so, uh, also, I remember on the 1959 baseball card for Elroy Face, I always remember that. And you see the little things at the bottom of the baseball cards with uh, little tidbits about the players. Elroy, and the offseason, Elroy's an offseason carpenter. Every time I see carpenter, I think of Elroy Face. Who went 18 and one that year? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I have two more things before we finish up. All uh, right. I, I want a bird story because I, I don't know that you, I mean, you've probably told them all, you know, you've now been on the beat when he shows up for over a decade, you figure, you know, you, you have some kind of status. And I, I think there are certain media members in cities that it's almost like you have to almost come to me, uh, which is not exactly Larry's personality, no. but you're a little bit older. What was that dynamic like when, when this guy comes in that red was able to wait to, you know, figure out how to get him in green. My very first encounter with Larry Bird was to write a, an interview with him for a story in the summer of 1979 for Us Magazine, the now defunct Us, which was, you know, the knockoff of People. And I don't know who published the publisher was, but Us Magazine was a magazine in existence. And in order to get him to interview, 
he, he would only do it if I went to Bob Wolf's house, his agent, not his own house. They, they were right around the corner from each other. At that point, he was very wary of the media. Maybe Wolf had even talked him into doing this interview. I'm not sure. What and, town was he in? In Newton, Mass. So this is summer after he signed before training camp. And, and uh, maybe, maybe after rookie camp. I'm not sure where in conjunction when rookie camp was, which was in August. Anyway, so I do the interview. And during the course of the interview, uh, you know, the conversation that we had, he says that he's going to fulfill his media obligations, but um, nobody's ever coming to his house. You know, he's going to be very careful about his relationships with the media. And I thought, okay, fine. That's how, that's how it was our start first day. Uh, during the course of the season, you know, we hit it off fairly well. He, I think he appreciated my enthusiasm. He actually told people at the end of the season, in an interview, he thought I could be a coach, which is very flattering. I did. I had one coaching experience in my life in summer in 1966. So I, 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 but no, I, I know I could not. Let me say it categorically. No, I was not qualified to be a coach. But that was very flattering and nice Larry to say it. So we hit it off in the beginning. Now, you want a couple of stories? Here's a couple of, uh, of Larry Bird stories. You know that promotion that still exists where if someone uh, at maybe at a, high school, a college game, they get somebody out of the stands, they have to make a layup, they have to make a free throw, and they have to make a three-pointer, and then from midcourt and if they do it all in 25 seconds they win whatever the prize is okay sure so i'm at a bc basketball game i don't know sometime in the mid 80s and um i do it so i make the layup i get to the free throw line i miss the first two because i'm rushing it i'm I'm trying i'm thinking about then i calm down i make the first three i don't know anyway i don't think i made the three i mean i i did it okay I, i competed okay so i was telling larry the next day at practice about it this is after practice. He's still shooting around. I was rebounding for him. You know, I mean, this is what we did. This, you know? So I said, Larry, here's the deal last night. So he looks at me. We're standing under the basket. He said, he, he, I have the ball. He said, hand me the ball. He said, time me. Layup. Free throw. Three-pointer. Swish. Mid-court. Swish. 17 seconds. So, but that's not the punchline. He, then he says, if I were doing it for real, I would try to bank the first three-pointer because if I missed, I could get the long rebound and have another shot. Larry Bird. My second Larry Bird. We're in Chicago before the game one night. Height of Jordanism, you know, I'm not, I guess. Anyway, we're in Chicago. Are you still uh, going out with the team at this stage of your life? Yeah, he loved playing in Chicago. Not at no, all. but are you, are you still? I'm, back, I'm now back on my second. I, I did the thing from 69 to 76. I got off. I came back in 78. This is my second stint. Um, so it was early, early uh, yeah. And I did a third one in 85, 86. No, not as much, only rarely, but still, but I still friendly with Larry. Okay. So I said, Larry, five bucks says you can't make a left-hand three-pointer. I just had him on top of my head. So me, first thing he does is he, he runs to the corner, naturally, smart. Second one, swish. Left-handed. So I, I hand him the five. He sticks it inside his sock. And to this day, I pray to God. I want to believe he played that whole game with that five in his sock because that's what Larry Bird would do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you mentioned the, him saying that about you being as a coach. Was there ever a moment where a team asked you about working in a front office? No. No. That's the most flattering thing of that nature <laughs> that anybody ever said. But no. And, you know, in, in another life, I would have been, you know, it would have been interesting to, to be on, on the other side uh, to some degree. But uh, I, I was, I'm an, I was, I was in the right place at the right time. That's for God sure. Oh my God, was I ever? You realize you asked about uh, way back about um, how my enthusiasm and knowledge or whatever you know helped. Um, I I hit the NBA just right. 
you know, it was ready to move. And, 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 and um, I, I was so lucky to, and in Boston, you know, the, the Celtics, the turning point for attendance was counts in 70, which uh, that, that's when people really, more than, you know, all those years with Russell and, and they went to 11 championships, they would only sell out routine on the playoffs, you know, routinely. They, they didn't. And, I, and it took like three years uh, you know, the, and, and even in the bird era, they still weren't selling out until the, uh, until after Bird uh, was, was proved who he was, who he was. Yeah, it wasn't a basketball town; it was a hockey town. So I had I, I kind of you know helped. Frankly, I, I don't think it's being immodest. I think it's being I helped create some coverage by the Globe, and the Globe let me loose. They let me you know they let me do what I wanted to do. They let me go to places, let me do stuff. I mean, I'm very grateful for that. And uh, so uh, it, I, I was absolutely in the right place at the right time. All right, last thing then. If you were a GM, would you trade Jalen Brown in a package for Kevin Durant for the Celts? Emphatically, no. They just went through, no, they don't need Kevin Durant. They can win. I'm not getting, there's no guarantee if they make this move that they're going to win anyway because they have now messed up the depth <laughs> that they've just created. There is no guarantee. Adding, that is by true. Adding Bogdan and Gallinari, they have rectified a situation. They have a team that came within two games of winning the championship. They have a star named Tatum who knows he has to who knows he didn't play well who will be very motivated they've got Brown who had proven how good he is they got they got the core group of 28 year old smart 27 you know 25 24 I mean, they, they don't need Kevin Durant I mean I know how good he is but but I'm no uh, this is I, I'm I'm not, I'm not saying unalterably but I'm firmly opposed to this leave things alone let Amy work with these guys you know, this, I want to, I don't want to, I want to win with this group. Now I'm speaking here as a fan, as, as you know, not as some alleged pundit, you know, right now, I mean, I'm speaking as a fan and, and I want to win with these guys. I like this group. I I, I, I don't need, I don't. And I'll say too, I'm a little wary of Durant. He's not a, He's not in the Irving's in a complete other category of, of unfathomable human beings. You know, the, in the history of the league, there's never been a package ever. Like like Kyrie Irving, a talent of that level, who's so strange and un, unfathomable, and he is that Durant isn't all reliable upstairs anymore either. I don't know where he's coming from. He's never gotten over the criticism he received for going from Oklahoma City to Golden State. He's never gotten over that, and and he's wary and defensive, and 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 I don't know. I just I don't need him. I don't need him. I, so I'm I'm praying that that uh, this is a you know false through. I want to go to come back next year with that group with Brogdon and with Gallinari. Uh, I'm going to promote something you did, but is there anything you need to promote here before we say goodbye? I have a book uh, and baseball book called in scoring position with Bill Chuck, uh, in which we mined 1400 games and not 44 years worth of my baseball scorebooks dating from the 1977 baseball season, uh, in which we have all kinds of interesting historical things and oddities and, 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 and sign pages and anecdotes and things that produce, you know, baseball produces. Yes. Uh, uh, so, uh, that, that's what I'm, that's what I'm huckstering right now. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is, I'm honest about it. That <laughs> is, yeah. I mean, if you're having trouble dating, pick that one up. But if you're if you're I'm really serious and it's easy, it's a, you do, now here's what there's a lot of good baseball books on the market. I've read them, I know them, and I'm going to read more. But ours is unique, and that's a proper use of that word, which is abused. There's no other book like it on the on the market. I know that, and I I'm I'm having some fun with you because you know first of all, when Boston won the World Series 1903, 
is one of my favorite baseball books ever. And so, you know, that's, that's been out for years. Check that one out. But the yeah. book that made a big impression on me and the reason I always love books is you never know quite how you're going to feel after you're done with one. For the most part, you're like, Hey, cool book on to the next one. But when I read 48 minutes, uh, that you wrote, you know, decades ago, yeah. uh, that was with Pluto, correct? With Terry Pluto. And by the yeah. way, in both cases, uh, 48 minutes and in unscoring position, I owe the very life of the book to my collaborator. It was Terry Pluto's idea for the two of us to work on that book in 87 to score one. We stole the idea. I, know I should use the word appropriate. It's a better word than steal. That's a more polite word. From Daniel Okrent, who wrote nine innings on baseball, one game between the Orioles and Brewers back around uh, 83. And, 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 Terry thought the idea we could maybe do this for basketball. And we picked a game between the Cavaliers and the Celtics, January 16th, 87, the defending champion Celtics, the up and coming Cavaliers with the rookie Brad Doherty and, and, and Mark Price who, and, and, and uh, Ron Harper senior. We didn't know he was a senior then. He was, uh, he was just Ron Harper. Yeah. Then. He was just Ron Harper. <laughs> he was just Ron Harper. Playing on Ron Harper. Hot Rod Williams. Huh? And, and uh, he was on that team. And, and anyway, so thank you. And I, I was no, but 48 Minutes, Bob, it was one of those books that I remember reading it and going, I want to understand this game better. And it was, you know, that's the great thing about being an author, the reward, I think, not only the accomplishment and all that kind of stuff, but knowing that, you know, however well a book does or doesn't do, especially for younger people, you're going to be reading this book and you're going to, you're going to, you know, there's, there can be some real influence there. And it was for me. And that's why I always well, love so that nice book. It's, say that. it's, you know, look, I, I've been reading for years. My dad and I talked about it for years. We got to work together. You know, like we, you already know how I feel about you, but I just like to remind you that, you know, there are things that you've done. You may not even realize. And that book for me was a, was a serious moment of me wanting to be better at understanding basketball. Well, thank you. And I'm going to pass that along to Terry too, because as I said, without Terry, Terry was the, the mover to get this, you know, to think about it and, and get it done. And, and he was fun to work with. And that, that book is one of the, it's really funny you mention that. That book and the current book I have were the two books of all that were fun to produce. You know, uh, fun. I love. I love the the process. Well, I'm going to read it. You know, I'm going to read it. So um, that that goes without saying. So we look forward to that coming out. So thanks for that. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. This is awesome. Thanks, Bob. Good. Okay. I hope the roster's intact. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, subject to credit approval, savings available to Apple Card owners, subject to eligibility, savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice, life advice, rr at gmail.com. Uh, I gotta tell you, it's still a little buzzed from last night. Not from any beers, but the, the adrenaline <laughs> rush of my first... Uh, my first night venture out 
on a boat learning Ooh. the learning the radar that is fucking nerve-wracking was I'm it a lesson you. were you solo i got it what happened no, i wasn't solo no i was with a trained captain but uh it was just something you know kind of do the night certification and it's it's awesome but it isn't i don't know i mean you know boat captains get it but it's <laughs> <laughs> you know i went out while it was still light and then the goal was you know to wait for it to get as dark as it was going to get and then you know bomb up maybe an hour up the up the coastline so i went down into the redondo harbor and then came back up at night and those first few minutes coming out behind the rock wall and you know getting your bearings and remembering there's some sailing buoy with no lights on it like that you pass on the way in it's like hey let's make sure we look at our waypoint and stay outside of this like one little buoy you're just not going to see you're not going to see and so you throw on your lights you change the radars you dim the screens you know the thing looked like hunt from red october in there it was it was <laughs> it was tight and all the and screens are red yeah all the screens are red and then you're just like okay uh so just drive that way and i can't see anything like i can't see anything and you're like yeah no that's that's the deal so what it's do like, you do you just follow the coastline and you just kind of i mean how I are you even supposed the, to know the buoys there what you do is you hit the reverse waypoint on your your navigation so you know um most of the time you go autopilot because it just makes better sense the, the autopilot's going to stay in the heading better than you are manually it saves gas. It's, you know, it's, there's a million reasons why you would do it, but it doesn't mean like you're not going to have to grab the wheel or something. If some, the real issue is other boats show up that are also on radar. So that's good. So you kind of see something coming up if it's in your heading and you're like, all right, well, what's, what's that? You know, is that, and it was like, is that a boat? Well, no, that's actually not a boat. That's this. And you're like, okay, well, you're going to change the filter on what the radar was picking up but yeah and then your eyes do adjust your eyes do adjust a bit where you're starting to at least see a little bit of the swells in front of you and then i had a spotlight up which is a bit like your high beams but it's not like it's lighting up everything in front of you and you're just good to go uh one of my friends suggested do you invest in night vision goggles i was just gonna say that would be so <laughs> badass <laughs> do i want to start pricing out nice night vision goggles yeah, probably. But do I want it? I don't. I would have imagined at some point they were like, yeah, we actually all all of us. The other thing is, is you don't put yourself in a position where you have to be driving around in your boat at night all the time. It's true. Um, yeah. So that or be, if you have night vision goggles and you'd only be driving at night. I mean, yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the real concern, I think, is you're coming back into your own marina. You. Are constantly what, are you, what are you afraid of hitting? Like, like I mean, obviously you see you're going to see boat lights, right? If a boat's coming at you, you see the light. Are right. you afraid of hitting like a like a seal? I don't I don't know a rock. No, I think it would be a wave. First coming, of all, like there's, a wave. No, nah, a rogue wave. I don't think you have to worry <laughs> about that that much. If you hit a you know, like if there's a log, you're just going to hit it. There's nothing you're going to you're not going to see it. You're just not going to see it. I think there was a story recently because the guy had told me there's another friend of mine that did the night lesson and he was like, I'm never doing that again. He's like, if I ever do this, I'm not doing it. Like, I'll just be day guy. I'll be day guy, maybe a sunset within a very short driving distance. So there's still some sunlight post sunset, like 30 minutes of light. And I was like, no, you know, how bad was it? He goes, dude, there was Coast Guard boats with their lights off chasing somebody and they both like buzzed us. Like on both sides quiet stressed out nervous looking straight ahead and then just two 
Coast Guard boats buzzing the tower. I was like, were they trying to fuck with you or something? And he's like, I don't know. Because even the guy giving the lesson was like, dude, what was that? Yeah. That was awful. Then they almost hit a floating bait fridge that was just floating <laughs> in the water. All right. As you so, do. Okay. Right. I, you know, whatever happened, somebody maybe hit a wave and lost their bait fridge or, you know, I don't know, maybe it was from a million miles offshore and it just sort of worked its way towards the coastline. Uh, and then there's always like near the marina that that I'm out of, there was there's always like a sailboat or two that are anchored. There's one guy who I think just lives on a sailboat. There's no mast on it. He doesn't want to How pay far out. It's right there on, on the exit and entrance, uh, into the marina. So, you know, there's no lights on it. So it's, I think a lot of it is paying attention to like what you see when you go out and then going, all right, look for that on the way back, look for that. Knowing the coastline helps a little bit too. But, uh, the last thing I want to sound like is like, Hey, I've, I've got this, but it was, it was a completely different experience. Cause you're just kind of going off of the radar. And, you know, I can't imagine what pilots do when they're learning to get their pilot's license. The instrument training is so intense and so specific, um, that it's, it's not really the same for boating. It's just kind of like, Hey, this is, this is what you have. And this is what you go off of, but there are no guarantees <laughs> with flying a plane, you know, I would imagine the guarantee level is a little bit higher on that. So there you go. That's the instrument training segment right. of the show today. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that we need to spend more time on it. But it was just uh, it was a fun experience. You know, getting out there, experiencing things, challenging yourself. There you go. All right. Being better. Yep. Yeah, being better. Win the day. Go Ducks. <laughs> or the that? night. <laughs> or the night. Even better. <laughs> well, well done, Saruti. Uh, we have a, a ton of Rosillo follow-ups here. Uh mm. So the guy who sent in the original Worcester thing wanted to clarify a few things. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for reading the email uh, and the advice about Portsmouth. Been there a few times, loved it, didn't even think about it. And so that was actually really good advice. So he's looking at a Portsmouth now. He's fired up. I would also say this, uh, as somebody who does like to look at, you know, as I've said this before, I think people love Zillow because they just go, hey, what if I lived here? All my bullshit. Like... Will my life change? And the answer is no. But that's why Zillow's fucking awesome. Because like you pretend for a moment as you look at the backyard of this other house in a different town that like everything's gonna be different. <laughs> nothing's nothing's ever different yeah. except should I buy a, just, house, a house in Charleston? Yeah, why not? Look at the look at this. I can afford this. <laughs> so yeah, it's like a little bit of an escape. Um, I don't even think it's about the real estate most of the time. But from a real estate standpoint, I have never seen price cuts in some of these areas that I've looked at like I have in just the last two weeks. Does, what does it mean? I don't know. You know, If I actually knew the answers to these things, uh, I probably wouldn't be podcasting. But I'm just saying, it. You know, is, is my advice, hey, everybody hold off for two years because we're still called it? No, I'm just saying I've never seen price cuts on houses in certain areas in the areas that I've looked at just because I want to educate myself on it. The way I looked at houses in Manhattan Beach for, I think, five or six years before I even moved here, uh, I've never seen price cuts across the board on so many properties like I am now. All right, moving forward. Uh, he said he felt the need to clarify a few things, and it's his fault for not being more clear before. As much as it was, uh, as much fun as it was getting roasted about Worcester, uh, I included his thinking uh, thinking out loud thing. It was the bottom of my wife and I's list and we have zero plans to invest in property there. Nothing against Worcester. Rereading the email, I can see how it looked like that was my top pick, so that's on me. 
I think that it was even mentioned was fascinating. And that's what led to the countless responses. Yeah. We're, we're also looking to make this purchase as a long-term investment to pass along to our children one day, along with our other properties. These guys, this guy's putting together quite the portfolio. Yeah. Uh, and we won't be buying for at least another year or two. Again, should have included that in the original email. Um, beautiful family he's got here. He sent in a picture. The kid might not even be one. So they are thinking long-term. So that does change uh, the equation here. He, he wants kind of a, a family deal where you know, this is going to be a generational house, which I think is, you know, you can pull it off, man. The New England estate, you. as we'll call yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, listen, I'm all for it, obviously. Like, if you could pull it off. Uh, the only problem was getting, like, how, how if I remember correctly, it was like, how often are you actually going to get there in the first few years? And if that's not a problem for you, then... I guess you just seem, answered yeah. your own question. Yeah. So like, you know, if, if it becomes easier five, six, seven years from now, you've just been running it out for that long. And even if you're just like breaking even on it, it seems kind of like, I mean, it's probably a little bit of a hassle, but if you're going to have this thing for like 20 years and your kids are going to go there and, you know, who knows, maybe your kid goes to college up in the Northeast and they have this house that they could stay at. Like, there you go. Like, this sounds like a pretty great life. Um, but it's all about this guy's the a planner. Yeah. This guy's yeah. a planner. It's like when, when Dignan breaks his buddy out of, the psychiatric ward, which isn't really, it's voluntary, uh, in bottle <laughs> rocket. And then they're on the bus and he's going through this loose leaf notebook of like the next five years, the next 20 years, the next 50 years. And if you pause the movie, you can read what they wrote. It was like travel, travel internationally, like establish selves <laughs> in community. It's It's so <laughs> damn funny. And why bottle rockets like my favorite movie ever. Um, and I didn't, and then obviously Luke Wilson goes, man, you really, you really thought it out, man. <laughs> so this guy's a thinker, the new England thing though. I, I forget what that website, what was it? What white people like or something? Wasn't there some website like that? And then it would just be like North face. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, yeah, Patagonia. Yeah. Checks out. Uh, <laughs> naming houses yeah. is definitely like, that's a level of money. You're like, I just want to be rich enough one day to name a house. And then, yeah. you, you know, you tell your kids, if you have them, be like, oh, are we going, are we going to Breakwater this summer? We're going yeah. to Holiday House? Yeah. There you yeah. go. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh. So it seems like a no-brainer to me. Listen, if it's going to be 20 plus years, you're not going to take a loss on it. So, I don't know. You know, real estate's never a terrible investment to make long term. That's what they say. That's what they say. That's what they used to say before the housing crisis. They're like, it just keeps going up. Like, so it's never going yeah, to go down? They're like, no. I, I know it's not the same thing. So that's not what I'm saying as a counter to you. I just Donovan Mitchell you. That's not what I'm doing. I just <laughs> always thought it was funny that like a shit was falling apart or there were signs that shit was falling apart. But most of us didn't know. Um, it was, they'd have some guy on and be like, well, housing is just housing. Bye, bye, bye. What are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be like, okay, I'd like a little more depth. <laughs> yeah. But I guess, I guess that's what housing is. Okay. Uh, let's get to a couple here. I think we spent enough time on Worcester. This guy luck, uh, checks. Yeah, good luck, man. Let us know. Name it. Um, 61195. Don't lift anymore. Play hoops three, four days a week. Having a bit of an issue explaining my sports fandoms to my friends and people I get into sports conversations with. I've been a huge basketball fan since I was a kid and never really had a favorite team. I'm from North Carolina, was a senior in high school, and I chose the Miami Heat as my favorite team. Mm. He says post LeBron. That's mm. weird. Suspect. Just love the Wade. Dragic dang and ISO Joe run. Wow. That's you didn't even get to enjoy the good part of that. Who was like, I really enjoyed watching Luau Dang and Joe Johnson. Yeah, this is, doesn't even 
I mean, but honestly, I kind of respect that because Joe Johnson played 24 games for them. I made an impression, you know, he sure did (laughs) on this guy. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, though, I respect that, though, because, you know, everyone's going to call you a bandwagoner, which kind of sucks. Like, that's what happened to me. And then we'll, I'll let you finish off the email, but like I'm a Niners fan, right? I'm like kind of less of a Niners fan now than no, I'm give us the full resume, Saruti. Yeah. So I'm, I'm Magic 49ers. Uh, I guess I kind of grew up a Red Sox fan, but I was, you know, I mostly played baseball. I didn't really, I don't really care about baseball now. And then I like You're a doer, Ever- not a watcher. I like Everton in the EPL. I, m- most of my teams kind of suck, although the Niners are good. But the thing is, like everyone when I was growing up, when I would tell them I was a Niners fan, they'd be like, you're such a bandwagoner. Like, that's lame. And I'm like, well, okay, but most of my life, the Niners have sucked. You know, I I had like the Jeff Garcia era, which was great. And then I went to Tim Rattay and then it was Alex Smith and two and 14 seasons back to back. And I'm like, yeah, all right. They were good in like the eighties and the early nineties, but I was six. Like, do you, are you going to really hold that against me for my whole life? So I kind of respect this guy because I imagine people probably call him uh, like a Homer bandwagon guy, but he's really not. Well, if I, if the heat thing is true, Congrats. I guess I just have a hard time believing that after they were in four straight finals. And by the way, he's saying this all happened. He liked hoop since he was a kid, but he decided his senior year of high school that, hey, yeah. the 37 and 45 heat, that's my vibe. I get it, though. It's tough. I mean, it was probably the Bobcats at the time probably weren't the most exciting draw. Maybe he was looking for something a little more exciting. South Beach is fun. You know, I don't know. Yeah, uh, that that group. He wasn't he wasn't super into Gerald Wallace. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't quite, I don't quite get that. Of it's, it's one thing when you're a kid, like when somebody has a weird fandom because they're super impressionable as little kids, and something just sort of happens. You know, like I, the first team I ever loved was the '82 '83 Sixers because it was Dr. J and Moses Malone, and it was the first time I started watching games, the first time I was paying attention to stats, any of this stuff. I was seven, and my dad's like, "What the fuck is going on? We live in New England." <laughs> You know, the Celtics are the Celtics. Are good. It's yeah. like the best, other than the absurd 11 title run, it's this other, like one of the other great runs from 81 on for the decade. So I timed it horribly. Although I've noticed this about me. When I show up to your city, big and rich, <laughs> I I do, I'm, I talked in the open about guaranteeing titles. I guarantee titles. When I'm coming to your city, I your teams win titles. It's it's unbelievable. Show up to Boston, like actually live in Boston, Boston, 02, Super Bowl, two World Series, 0407. Yeah, curse breaks, yeah. Three more, three more, well, three total Super Bowls. So I plan it and then 08, Celtics win. So that was all while I lived there. The span of like was the Bruins title in there too? No, but I obviously had planted the seed for yeah. Rosillo culture. <laughs> Bruins knew you. They were like, hey, yeah, we got to get Bruins one. Yeah, the Bruins were like, we, you know, so then I moved to Hartford, <laughs> UConn immediately a title. Yeah, yeah. Real Shabazz. quick, because people are like, hey, what, what do you, where's the Hartford one? Don't worry about it. We got a couple in there. I show up, you start winning titles, UConn, move out to LA. Yard Goats, by the way, came to town, I think, when you were there as well. So you, you not only did you bring championships, you literally brought new teams. LA. Lakers, Rams, Dodgers within like three years. <laughs> Sparks get one in there? Uh, let's do a quick Google. How about that Sparks story, that Cambridge? That was... Don't know much about it, but the, I don't, uh, I don't know the story is pretty it. wild. Yeah. <laughs> story is pretty wild. <laughs> Check that one out. Uh, uh, so yeah, Sparks, I, 2016. You weren't quite there yet. No, but I was thinking about it. I was on yeah. Zillow. So, yeah. yeah. They yeah. knew. Honestly... 
there should be some sort of chamber of commerce. Cleveland should be reaching out. Although, can you, know, you move to go- Orlando? Any thoughts? Any thoughts on buying some real estate in Orlando? You and Kevin Clark could split it. No taxes. Yeah, there you, yep, you could claim residency there, save a ton of money. You have yeah, two boats. They get, get you somewhere <laughs> else, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although you could move to Iceland and never have to worry about driving your boat at night. Yeah. Iceland won the World Cup when you get there. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I almost got you a jersey on the way out. I was like, am I going to buy Saruti a $100 Puma Icelandic national team jersey? And then the sizes were all screwed up because the XL looked like it was going to be snug on you. And the thing yeah. is, is like Icelandic You're people... Out. Not every Icelandic person is watch, walking around like Thor. That's a bit of a misconception. Uh, but yeah, I would have thought if there was one country that sizes weren't going to go on the on the smaller size of things. Like I didn't, I wasn't in Florence, man, smoking cigs on a scooter outside and it's some sort of medium Henley. All right, did somebody send an email? He did. <laughs> that was that was about an hour ago. <laughs> Uh, I still can't get over the Joe Johnson 24 game thing. I, I guess I'm just, I find it hard to believe that it see as a senior in high school, that was the team. So whatever that that's, that's, that's what he's saying as cringy as he culture admittedly can be at times. I love the idea of my favorite team valuing winning and being consistently competitive. All right. Well, they also live in a great market attracted to free agents. It's pretty easy. It's much easier than Charlotte. Yeah. Let's, let's remember that line. I chose the Heat before the season. Ironically, they played the hometown Hornets in the first round of the playoffs. I actively rooted against the Hornets and got a lot of flack from my friends. Charlotte's obviously a bottom-tier franchise in terms of winning, so it's not often you meet Charlotte fans, even where I'm from, which is not very far from the team. So usually it's not an issue. But I now have season tickets. I've had season tickets for two seasons. My Hornets friends, uh, my Hornets fan friends give me shit for going to games and occasionally wearing, wearing Hornets jerseys geared to games. Well, if you're buying season tickets, you are supporting the team. So I guess I'm not, I don't know. I was also confronted by an aggressive group of Hornets fans for wearing heat gear at a heat Hornets game. So wait, are you wearing Hornets gears to the games, not against the heat, and then you wear heat gear? (laughs) He's going back and forth. I mean, I I mean. No, people are going to have a problem with this. Uh, So I root for them whenever they play anyone else, but I'm all into my team and have been since I jumped on the wagon. So you are kind of a Hornets fan too. You care enough. I mean, season tickets is a massive, massive investment, unless your company just pays for them and gives you a few. All right. I'm also a Packers fan, but that's more of a family thing. I know Saruti can relate minus the heat aspect. So what's the best route to take? Tell them I'm not tying myself to a shitty organization because I was born in the state or just tell them to fuck off. I like who I like. Ooh, aggressive. We'd like to hear what Steve has to say. So I think we already covered the Steve part. Here's what I would never say to your friends anymore, that you love the idea of your favorite team valuing winning and being consistently competitive. That sounds like something that would be like on a heat culture Reddit thread. Uh, you don't value it more than other teams do. You think you do. Uh, I love the Spo part of it, the Udonis thing. I, I think there should be a massive pivot towards a couple older guys that know they're not going to play, that are around to help and can speak to players in a way coaches can't. I think there should be more Udonis Haslam's on rosters in the league. Now, having said all that stuff, uh, this is just what you signed up for, man. I mean, it could be worse. You could be a Duke, Yankees, Cowboys, Lakers fan, which I think Notre is pretty Dame. much... Yeah, I think Duke is still worse because you can kind of you can go with. I think there's more people that dislike Duke basketball than Notre Dame football. I do believe that. Uh, I know Notre Dame football is not everybody's favorite either, but that's just what's going to happen. If you're going to be one of those guys uh, with the going abroad fan resume, you're just going to get shit. You're just going to get shit. So I wouldn't even bother arguing about it. You know, I just wouldn't. But I'd have more sympathy for you if it was 
you liked Alonzo Mourning when you were eight and there was yeah. something cool and you liked the jerseys and they were different and all that stuff. Like when it's a, when I meet somebody and I'm like, well, why do you like them? I don't care anymore, by the way. But maybe when I did care when I was younger, then somebody just goes, well, when I was a little kid, dot, dot, dot. And it's like, all right, well, then that's cool. You kind of picked the team when you were a little kid. Or maybe it was annoying your family. I got off the Sixers thing after Barkley. You know, then I was like, what am I going to do? Root for Tim Perry here? Like, this is getting <laughs> stupid. And then I took a couple of years off of caring about any team. And then I was like, all right, I'm sort of into the Boston thing again. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not captain 617 like other guys are. I don't have the skyline tatted on my back permanently that we know about. I'm actually a pretty big, I'm okay if you, even if you're from a place, if you pick teams that are not from that place, but you can't be the flip flopper. So it doesn't sound, I'm not saying you are the flip flopper because it's not, you, you are a Heat fan, but I understand why Hornets fans would be like, dude, you're going to show up to Irina like wearing, you know, Lonzo Ball or a Lamella Ball jersey, you know. One night, maybe and then Lonzo. Next night, one day, maybe Lonzo. Jersey. Who knows? Maybe yeah. he's going to be a Bulls jersey. Just don't. I, I would say just don't. Just don't flip flop back and forth. Like, don't be one of those guys that like gets a 50-50 jersey where it's like half, you know, whatever, half half Hornets, half Heat. And it doesn't sound like you're that guy, so that's fine. People are going to give you shit, but as long as you don't change, I'm okay with it. Um, and like for me, I mean, ironically, like if I had just liked the teams in my own backyard, I'd probably be a much happier sports fan than I am now. But. I kind of went the same route and, you know, you kind of have to stick with who you stick with. So, you know, you pick the heat. That's great. Good for you. You definitely, they're definitely a better franchise than the, than the Hornets, but I, I don't blame Hornets fans for getting mad at you for showing up to the arena in two different jerseys. All right. Uh, we did have somebody send in a, uh, picture of dog shit with a sock in it. Okay. Any reason? No context? No, I just thought we'd be interested because of the dog eating sock email. We are not yeah. interested. We are not interested refrain in the future i don't think that's the solution yeah sorry thanks for that didn't yeah no i mean i get that he was like hey i'm part of this now and i'm gonna be involved kyle forwarded that one to me and uh i opened it and it was <laughs> it was really gross and it, but there was a sock mixed in it and so yeah just a psa appreciate the effort we're we got it covered yep okay this one's pretty heavy uh this is a this is a it's not like gonna bum anybody out because you're gonna laugh but it's it's a problem. Okay. 23 years old, 5'10", not very athletic, but most of this email isn't about me. It's about my dad. For background, my mom has been out of the picture for a long time for reasons not worth getting into. My dad is a good solo parent to me, but we were definitely not close. We're both introverts, not very emotive people. He's very focused on his work all the time. What's that like? Our conversations are pretty surface level, but I love him and know that he loves me. All right. When I was a teenager, my dad sold his company for a lucrative sum, and he still works in the industry in a leadership position today. This made us a more wealthy family than my upbringing was. Almost two years ago, my dad met this younger woman. Let's call her Stephanie, who's in her mid-30s. They've been dating ever since. Stephanie probably appears to be a typical trophy partner because she is much younger and works as a yoga instructor and on a physical attractiveness alone is hilariously way out of my dad's league. Uh, and aside on this. We all like what we like. We like different things. Uh, if you were an older guy who can provide and uh, a younger girl likes that setup, good for both of you. And if you're an older guy that has a, a younger, attractive girl that maybe some people are going to roll their eyes at, fuck them and, and good for you. You know, we're all, we're all negotiating with each other in some form or fashion. So I always think it's kind of weird when it's like, oh, look at that guy. Look at her. Uh, what a joke or whatever. It's like, okay, but you know, what a, like, she decided to prioritize certain things and he provided the things that he, she prioritizes and she provides the things that he prioritizes. Yeah, everybody so seems happy here. Yeah. Just get the fuck out of everybody's way. All right. Rant over almost two years ago, uh, as we said. All right. So, uh, while this may sound easy to critique, I can strongly say 
See, even he was kind of going like, I know people are going to say whatever. I can strongly say Stephanie's been an amazing positive influence on my dad. She's genuinely a sweet person, makes him laugh in ways I've never seen before. And their love seems really solid. They've made passing comments about him proposing, but I think, uh, and I think I would be, I, and I think not, but, and I think I would be supportive of that. Even though she's closer to me in age, uh, I would welcome her as a permanent member of our family. A few days ago, Stephanie started talking to me about these elaborate plans she has for his 50th birthday in a few months, uh, which will be a surprise party with all of his friends, closest colleagues. She wants to make 50 cupcakes, 50 of his favorite sliders, 50 mini cocktails of his favorite drink, get 50 candles, 50 balloons to decorate. You get the pattern. Yes, we do. We get the pattern. I think for my dad's 50th, he would prefer to go fishing. I know this because that's what we did on his 50th birthday back when I was just starting high school in 2013. My dad is turning 59. Not 50. <laughs> he clearly has lied to Stephanie about his age. Granted, since he sold the companies, invested more in his appearance, dyes his hair, is in better shape, and even had a facelift. I attached a photo of him from last year, as you can see, but he is not the age she thinks he is. He doesn't look 50 in the picture. Now, could he be 50? Yeah. Have I, re- have I looked at his picture and read this 50. email? Yeah, going, oh, wait. Um, so I'm not acting like, I can just nail everybody's age and some pictures. So I'm probably playing the results here a little bit because you've already read the email, but yeah. All right. So unfortunately I am an all caps, terrible liar. And I'm already paranoid that Stephanie gauged my confused reaction about why she's so into his 50th theme for his random birthday party, (laughs) but just told her I was tired and confused. The idea of keeping up alive for a few months makes me really nervous, especially during the night of the party. What should I do? My dad and I have never talked about relationships of any kind before, and the idea of confronting a lie of his is not the first way that I want to do it. Also, I really don't want Stephanie to be turned off to him long-term by this lie, and I think he's the type of person who maybe isn't aware of how big a deal this is or thinks nobody would ever find out. Please help with any advice you can. This is so well-written and so good i'm on the concern of fraud meter it's it's ticking up a bit yeah but we're going we're going with it uh i would probably say something to him i know you said it doesn't sound like you're all that close but i would go hey what's the plan here i wouldn't get in the way of this you know if she wants to believe that he's 50 and they're getting along and everybody's in love i i think the age thing is like you have no idea how the other party is going to react that's what i think this is it could be oh that's funny and we're in love and I don't care, or it can be you, our relationship is built on a faulty foundation of lies. Like I, it's all about how that person processes these things. I know that I probably wouldn't care. Although I know if I were dating somebody, she's like, I'm actually like 55. Like, eh. <laughs> I had some clues. Yeah. There were some, there were some hints along the way. <laughs> yeah. Fucking, you kept getting discounts at hotels and movie theaters. <laughs> AARP kept sending you a lot of mail. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I thought the AARP, everybody says, like, you filled it out. Like, <laughs> so, um, you know, even though you're not really close with him, I think you should say, hey, what's what's the play? Like, okay, clearly she thinks you're turning 50, so you lied. I'm not going to do anything because I don't think it is your right to do anything here. Uh, that's, so that's like, if there's one strong piece of advice, it's like, this is not your, your thing to rule on here. The fact that she looked at you a little weird, cause you were like, what the fuck are you talking about? This 50th theme that could be you getting in your own head. Who knows? Whatever. Um, she's never looked at a driver's license. You know, she's never had to fill out anything when they're traveling somewhere. Maybe he's the guy paying for it all. So he's booked yeah. everything the entire time. 
uh, I guess two years. I mean, yeah, sure. Anybody can pull stuff off if you really want to. Um, I imagine on a marriage license at some point, don't you have to fill that stuff out, Saruti? You do. Because I was trying to think about this. If I had lied to my wife, Maddie, about like, if I was say like five years older, would she find out? The answer is yes, because she does like <laughs> most of the clerical stuff, you know, and there's there, there's no way I'd be able to hide that. I mean, like medical information, whatever. But Sounds that like would be awesome. Change. She'd be like, I knew he was like 17 when I met him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, five years, exactly, five years younger. Uh, but she would definitely find out. So I don't, I mean, maybe he's just pulling all the strings here and she's just kind of long for the ride and that's fine. Uh, the other question is, other, do other, other people at this party are going to know that he's not 50? That's a great point. And it was uh, worth it So you're fucked. You're, yeah, right. you're absolutely fucked. You have, this party like, can't happen. No, it can't because I mean, unless everyone's just going to be cool with it, I I, I highly doubt that. You no, have to talk there's to no dad. way. There's no way in a room of all these people drinking and this thing being absurd. And if they're all of his friends, somebody's going to fuck up. So this party actually can't happen, which is nope. which is a better point about all of it. Um, and what he'll need to do is tell her he doesn't want to party at all, uh, which may lead to them having to address it. And I have no idea how to. I don't know that you. He has to tell her. You know, you could, you could place, if it turned into an argument, you could be like, so wait, there's a number on our happiness, you know, play one of those bullshit lines, but the party itself is going to be one of the most awkward things ever. If it's a bunch of 60 year old guys being like, dude, he told the yoga instructor he's 49 or 47 when they met. And now they're having a fake 50th birthday party and she doesn't know that could actually be the part where she would have way more justification for being upset, not about the lie, but then to feel like she's being humiliated at a party that she's throwing with a theme for a guy that's a decade older. Yep. It would be so, way worse. I wonder how, yeah. I wish I knew how old she was. Is she like in her? No, she said mid thirties. Mid thirties. Okay. Well, thirties. So, yeah. All right. That's yeah. I mean, 10, God, 10. There's a big difference between 50 and 60, you know? I know so 60 30, 50, but 25. So that'd be me dating a 22 year old or 21 year old. Excuse me. Yeah. 20, 21. I don't, you know, granted, there's a lot of stuff on Instagram that's fun. I, I can't. Now, again, when you're 59 and it's 35, somebody's had some life experience in the yoga world, you're meeting people. So that's an entirely different vibe than, you know, if I was dating somebody and I'd be like, oh, you have midterms this week? That sucks. I don't, I don't know. There wouldn't be a ton of, I don't know what there'd be to talk about. I mean, the, the interesting thing too is like, so he definitely had no plans of telling her ever, I would imagine then. He, he was just going to like, they were just going to live out the rest of their lives and he was going to die 10 years older than everyone thought he was or that least she thought he was. I mean, at some point, <laughs> at some point, like, you're going to get caught in this lie. And uh, I think he, I think this, I think this guy has to tell his dad because, but the problem is too, and then like if, if, like if it gets back to her that you know he, you know this guy basically put the kibosh on the party, she's going to be mad at you too. Like there has to be some sort of explanation. Like she eventually he is going to have to tell her that he's ten years older than she thinks she is because there, there's no way to lie your way through that. Zag, does she go? Holy shit, this guy's actually a decade older and he's loaded. And she's and she's more pumped about it. Yeah, she's, she's like, like mm, he's even better. Yeah, closer to the settlement payout. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe there's a life insurance yeah. thing going on. I, mean, I don't know. Not nice to say. Had to be brought up. Yeah, Sorry. you know, yeah. yeah, that's what it is. You're right. Party can't happen, but it's not on the guy emailing. The guy emailing can't initiate. Well, any no, of he's got to. He's got to tell his dad, though. No, no, I'm talking yeah. about with, with Stephanie here, the yoga. Yeah, but that's it. Like you say, hey, I, I, I got wind of this. Like you're, it's a problem. Like you got to figure it out. Yeah, party can't happen because it's going to be humiliating for her, and somebody's going to screw it up. So if you're going to have the party, and she's adamant it's happening, you got to tell her. Uh, or you have to try to, but like, 
you know. It's like we're making 60 cupcakes now. 59. No. Okay, that's life advice. Uh, email us, lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. Thanks to Steve and Mike in for Kyle today. And we'll be back next week. We got some football stuff we're doing. So we got a full week next week. Uh, and then the Icelandic travel pod will be out the week after that. So um, there'll be I a bunch of people asking about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's done. It's done. I, you know, I guess if you like me, you'll like it. I probably would turn it off halfway through only <laughs> because it's me talking for like, you know, five or six parts for like 50 to an hour, 50 minutes to an hour. I mean, it's, so maybe we'll do a little audio breakup, a little reset, maybe some Icelandic yeah, I'll throw music. A couple, we'll throw a break in there, you know, we'll do a Can little we do, what kind in, of Icelandic music? Do, do we have any clear Icelandic Eurovision, music? Eurovision, maybe? Yeah. Isn't, isn't that where the, yeah, that movie happened? Anyway, we'll figure it out. There'll be a life advice in there too. So we'll, uh, we'll have stuff for you, even though we're, uh, we're taking the little break in this six-week window that we have uh, at the end of basketball before football. Okay, thank you as always. Ryan Russell Podcast, Ryan Russell Podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans at Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.